Please listen carefully. 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 Welcome to the Utterly Moderate Podcast, where two reasonable social scientists discuss big, important topics by presenting just the facts and none of the unneeded opinions and biases. I'm Allison Dagnus, and I'm a political scientist. And I'm Lawrence Eppert. I'm a sociologist. How are you today, Allie? I am very well, Lawrence. Thanks. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. There's a lot going on. We're all trying to get ready for the semester. Both you and I are professors, so we have to get our classes ready, but also... We have children, which means we have to get them ready for school. It's so true. And yet, you know, amidst all of this, we taped this really interesting podcast today. And and I got to tell you something. This topic, this topic is just death. You know why? <laughs> because, because... Because <laughs> the topic is death. We're taught we but wait, don't turn off your don't turn turn don't turn off your phones. Um the topic uh actually we're talking about funerals today, which totally interesting. You know why? Because all of us are going to die um at some point. <laughs> Hopefully later, later, much, much, much later. Um, but before we get to funerals, which really I think is super interesting, and we try to make it as ungrim as humanly possible. Um, before we get to that, let's talk, let's talk about life. Let's talk about living. Let's talk about how expensive children are, because that really is what this time of year is all about. It's, it's those big bills at Target. That We've we brought on two pay. experts to talk about this, Ali Dagnus and Lawrence <laughs> Eppern. <laughs> we run the gamut because I'm old and you are already, you are a child yourself. Um, and so we've got kids who are, in daycare, ranging all the way up to a college age child as well. So we cover, we cover the whole gamut of getting our kids back to school. I'm just part of the problem. Children having children. Oh my God. It's so true. You really are. <laughs> um, okay. So tell us, okay. I remember when my kids were in daycare, um, any back to school, does, does uh, tiny little miles, does he move to a different room? With the start of the new the new academic year? Well, Miles actually never stopped going to daycare this summer. I had a super busy summer research-wise, uh, working on two books, number of research projects, number of articles. Um, but in September, when he turns one, he actually will be old enough to go to the on-campus daycare, which will be awesome because he'll be closer to me while I'm at work. And um, not awesome that he's getting older. Actually, super sad. <laughs> Makes me actually pretty sad. Um, because I love having babies in the house and, you know, his first birthday means he's just getting older as they, as they do. Um, my other three kids, my youngest daughter is starting kindergarten. My other daughter is starting third grade. And then my other son, Riley, my oldest child, he is starting fifth grade. And so for the three oldest kids, kind of the normal stuff, you know, buying school supplies and backpacks and new school clothes and, and all that fun stuff. When I first started at SHIP, I was so excited. But the waiting list for the on-campus daycare was so long, I could not, I never was able to get my children in there. So Really? Yeah. And this is a true story. When I got the job at SHIP, we were living in upstate New York, um, actually really near where Hillary Burton now lives. And so my daughter was in daycare then. And I got the job at SHIP. And the first thing that I did was come down here and look for 
a good daycare center. And I did that on my own. I brought my daughter with me and we found a daycare center and then we went back home. And then with my husband, we came down and looked for a house. And because he'd been in the army, um, you know, he said, look, I, I don't want to move again. I've, I've moved, you know, like a zillion times in the last <laughs> 25 years. I just don't want to do it again. So we had to find a forever house and we had two days to do it. And so oh, we that found seems like, a, seems like an easy task. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I mean, we were serious. We found a real a realtor and we said, listen, find us as many houses as you can. We are not going to waste our time. Uh, we are going to walk in. And if it isn't for us, we're walking right out again. She was like, okie dokie. And so we saw more than 20 houses in two days. In two days? In two days. Holy moly. And we walked into this house and I loved it so much that I came running out. You know, we would take turns. Pete would wait in the car with the baby, you know, if she was asleep um, and I would walk in or I would wait in the car with the baby um, and then he would walk in. I walked in. I loved this house so much. I came running out, like waving my hands, not screaming because we didn't want to wake up a sleeping baby. And I would wave my hands and I was like, this is it. This is the house. This is the house. And Pete was like, <laughs> don't give away how excited you are. <laughs> I was like, like, it's too late. Like, I love it. I love it. You this just house. added $100,000. That's exactly price. right. The price just <laughs> went up. Um, and I loved it and loved it and loved it. And so we put in an offer. And luckily for us, the person who, okay, you set yourself up for this. I know we're talking about school, but now I got to tell you the story of this house. The person who was selling it was moving to Rochester, New York, because he was a surgeon and had just gotten this position um, in Rochester that he had to go to. So they had to sell the house. So we put in an offer. The realtor was like, I can't believe this. It never goes this quickly. And I was like, yay, we got the house. Oh my gosh. I wonder where it is in location to the daycare center, because I did not know from this town that we moved to. <laughs> and turns out daycare center, half a block away. You oh, walk wow. out the door of my house and turn right and it's there. And I was like, well, that's lucky. Yeah, also no lucky, a really good friend of mine from C-SPAN, Susan Paley, friend of the pod, MFSP, my friend Susan Paley, MFSP, <laughs> said, oh my gosh, you're moving to Chambersburg. One of my best friends from growing up, Michael Light, he lived in Chambersburg. I was like, oh. He lives in Chambersburg. I was like, that's amazing. She's like, you're going to love him. He's smart. He's a doctor. He's got kids your age. I was like, this, your kids ages. This is fantastic. I was like, oh my gosh, yay. So she gets back to me and says, you're not going to believe this. He's, he's actually not going to be there much longer. He's moving, blah, blah, blah. We bought Michael Light's house. Holy moly. And I didn't even realize it until three months after we bought Michael Light's house. I mean, Allie, we've talked about this before and, you know, you know, as well as I do, it can be nearly impossible to get your kids into the really high quality daycares in an area. When I first finished my PhD, um, my first job took me to Blacksburg, Virginia, which is just an awesome place. I love that that town. Um, and, you know, you get hired in the spring and then you start in August. So you don't have much time and, and you're not there. You got to do a lot of the legwork on a house and daycares and all that kind of stuff from afar. But um, we got our kids on the list, the waiting list for uh, the really good daycare in town before we even arrived in August. And this is not a lie. This is going to sound like I'm exaggerating and I'm stretching the truth for a good story, but I swear to you, this is true. Uh, four years later, when I was hired at Shippensburg University and we were leaving Blacksburg to come to Pennsylvania, four years later, that daycare called and said, 
Congratulations, you're off the waiting list. Oh no! A spot. I mean, unbelievable. You're like, and thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot for the call. See ya. Um, but what about you? So you heard about my kids and what they're preparing for this fall. What about you? You've got uh, one in high school, right? And one in college. So what does that preparation look like? Um, we've already started with field hockey practice. And um, and so we are one foot into high school already. And it's, you know, mid-August. And um, my eldest goes back to college in a couple of weeks and um, back to Charm City, back to Baltimore. And so high school is probably, you know, I remember when the girls were in middle school, it was it was like we had to do so many target runs to get, um, you know, book like notebooks and pencils and, um, you know, extra hormones and stuff that you <laughs> have to have when you're, when you're going through, when you're going through middle school, um, which just was, uh, it's, it's fun. Lawrence, you're going to have a really great time with Yay. your four kids through middle school. That was a delight. Um, but no matter what school, my daughters and my wife will be best friends though. Right. Oh my gosh. It's, it's like the, Fast and and then it just gets they get even closer in high school. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I remember that from having two sisters. Yeah, yeah. Here's the really fun thing that Pete is just discovering now: you will not be spared in high school either. And I know you're thinking, not my little daughters, not my sweet, not darlings, my angels, not your angels. <laughs> I remember hearing that from my friends, and I was like, oh yeah, well. My girls and I, we have a really, really, we do, we have a great relationship. I mean, we really do. And then high school comes along and um, just remember, it is developmentally a child's job during adolescence. It is in their job description to pull away from you. (laughs) And they're going to do that whether we like it or not. And we don't like it, but they're going to pull away from us. So. Um, that is my favorite. This has nothing to do with that, but my favorite moment on the pod with your kids is when, uh, one of your daughters came in the room and said, while we're taping the pod and says, mom, can I have $20? And you said, I'm taping a pod. So she goes, mom, can I have $20? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yep. I'm pretty sure both of them at some point have done that. Yeah. I'm just, I'm a walking ATM cook. All right. So what about college? Do you have to move Maddie back into her dorm and all her stuff? Yes. Because you had a fun time with that last year. Yeah, that was so that was great. <laughs> moving moving her out of moving her out of college was fantastic. Pete was laid up with the spine and you were uh you were saying some some choice words, I think, to I, yourself. And I believe all of them began with I love you. You are the center <laughs> of my world. Um Well you and you were meeting her boyfriend's parents for the first time. <laughs> for the first time, yeah, that was fantastic. All right. I want the true story of just how nice you were. <laughs> Get Caroline in here. No, I no, we are not getting Caroline in here. I mean, Car- Caroline, <laughs> that's a totally different. No, uh, yeah, it, I mean, Pete and I did She'll for elbow four. you out of the way. Yeah, exactly. give her that microphone. Oh, she's dying to sit down and give her disquisition on dating. Caroline, yeah, can't you hear me? You got headphones in, darn it. <laughs> she's got thoughts. Her thoughts have thoughts. She's she has a she has a rubric. She has a whiteboard. It's, she's got a lot of ideas. Um, so I will be moving Maddie back in, I will be helping her move back into helping, helping last time. It sounded like you were the help, like you were doing all of the, Oh honey, that's what, that's what being a mom is. I am just, (laughs) I've been relegated to being the help for 19 years. So that's what I am. That's okay. That's okay. It's a good job. 
All right. So we've got the kids taken care of, but you and I also have to go back to school now. So are you ready? I am ready adjacent. Um, I am. <laughs> I am. I am close to ready. I mean, I'm, I could see ready. Ready is right in front of me. I have a lot of my stuff done. I have most of my syllabi done. I'm, I'm close to ready. I, I my first graduate class is tomorrow night. And so I have a lot of the stuff ready ish. Syllabi are funny. The way I describe it to my students, I'm like, look, I know this syllabus is long. I didn't used to be, right? When I first started teaching, my syllabi were short. And then most students did great, but one student did something really terrible. (laughs) And so I had to add a line to it. Like, you can't do this, right? Right. Like, you can't set fires in the classroom. Please don't do your nails. That's right. (laughs) Which, by the way, I I had a young woman whip out a manicure kit and do her nails in class. I was like, oh, why? Well, and some of the stuff I feel bad about, like I, I've started putting a statement on my syllabi that say, once exams begin, you can't leave the room to go to the bathroom. And I feel ah. bad because I know legitimately some people have to go to the bathroom, but at the same time, I've had folks leave and cheat. You know? <laughs> so right, 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 right. Like, yeah. Yeah. So, you it, are you syllabi ready? My syllabi are ready for uh, most of my classes. I'm just... It'll be ready. My voice just got really hot, <laughs> which means I'm I'm not certain of it. It'll my, be ready. My wife asks if I, if I ate all the cookies. I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> it, was a, it was the baby. The baby yeah. got it. The one-year-old yeah. was able to The one that walk can't walk. And chew. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what else? Do we, so we got to get our syllabi ready. Yeah. You got to get the first day, you know, like the first week first day of like, out, yeah. yeah, like, you know, are you, do you have your legs under you in terms of like your readings and, you know. Well, I know that I'll be ready, but uh, <laughs> I think it's going to be a last second uh, kind of thing. I think I'll be ready the morning of my classes. So we'll be ready. So with that, what do you think? Should we, should we move over to a serious topic that's important and also interesting? Let's talk about funerals. Let's topic talk for today's about episode. About funerals. All right. Well, up next, we are going to speak with Eric Trimble, a licensed funeral director and embalmer in Illinois and Iowa. He is also the president of the Trimble Funeral Home and Crematory in Coal Valley, Illinois. Eric has lived in a house next door to his funeral home his entire life until he went to college. As a youngster in grade school, he began helping to mow the grass and wash the cars at the funeral home. He decided in college to become a funeral director himself. He graduated from the University of Minnesota's Department of Mortuary Science in 1969, and that same year he joined his father, Riley Trimble, in the funeral business. Eric says, I truly find meaning in helping people at a time when no one else can help them. My father taught me that being a funeral director is a sacred calling because we are entrusted with the most valuable treasure a family has, a loved one. Therefore, we act as if every funeral were for a member of our own family. It's really great to have Eric on the show today, and we look forward to our discussion with him up next.
Eric Trimble. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I would like to begin with the end. So let's say that I am dead and everyone <laughs> is very sad. And um, and Lawrence knows that um, what he has to do upon hearing of this tragic news is reserve Memorial Auditorium for my memorial service because it's a very big venue and I'm very popular and our student union building is just not going to be big enough. So he's going to do that. Once he does that, what happens next? Who calls you? How do you find out about me? Then what happens to me? Can you talk us through what it, what is the, what are the next steps after my untimely demise? So she's in a hospital or whatever, like how does her body even, no, no, I just explode and there's just yeah. hair left. Hair <laughs> and a smile. That's it. And where the body is determines how we're notified. Okay. Oh, why? How so? Well, if it's a death in a residence mm-hmm. under hospice care, hospice would be the ones calling us. They okay. would come to the house and pronounce the death. And then they contact the funeral home of the family's choice. Uh, death in a hospital, the nurses, whoever the nursing supervisor typically, would be the one to call and alert the funeral home. Uh, uh, accidental death, the coroner would be the one, or medical examiner would be the one notifying. Uh, there are circumstances the family may well call um, with a pending death. Uh, mom's in hospice and they've given her limited time. Uh, can we come in and make arrangements ahead of time? And, Many people do that. So there's not an intermediary like a like if if I die in my house, my body doesn't go sit in a morgue somewhere, and then you, you like you send somebody to get it from my home. Each community is different, uh-huh. hmm. primarily depending on the size. I mean, most major cities have a county morgue or a right. city morgue, mm-hmm. and the medical examiner or the coroner would have staff or would contract with a funeral home to transport to the morgue. Then after the funeral home is chosen, they would go to the morgue following autopsy and whatever examinations the medical examiner um, would do. Smaller towns maybe don't have a morgue and the coroner or medical examiner uh, would often have a funeral home on call if the family isn't able to be notified yet. Ultimately, the family has the choice of whatever funeral home they want. Now, we are, you're going to be surprised how fascinated we are about the minutia of this. So, and we want to go through it. So, so the the transport, is it like a refrigerated type of thing? Like, how does the body get, or does it just come in like a? Typically a van, in most instances, with a a cot, an ambulance cot, Mm -hmm. uh, with a mattress and blankets. Uh, stretcher often. Mm-hmm. Um, the equipment that's used for death on the second floor of a home is different than in a hospital or a nursing home with wide corridors, of course. All right. So body arrives at your uh, funeral home and, and you need to start preparing the body, I assume. So walk us through from, from when you get the body to when it's ready for the service. Well, the first thing we need to do is contact the next of kin and determine how we can best help them. If they are going to have viewing, if they're going to have private viewing or a public viewing, or cremation with no viewing, depends on what our next step is then. 
if there's to be a viewing, then embalming would take place. And that's typically done as soon as we're able to have permission to do it. Um, you know, so the first step is is embalming. Embalming, you said you wanted minutiae. We do. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, please. <laughs> yeah. Well, em- embalming is involves injecting a preservative fluid in, through the arterial system into the body. The, your, the blood center, the blood system, is a closed plumbing network, if you will. If I were to have a hose filled with water and put my thumb over each end, I've got a hose filled with water. If I let ink in at one end, nothing's going to happen unless I remove my finger on the other end and let the ink run, and then I cover it. I can now have a hose filled with ink rather than filled with water. Theory of embalming is the same. We raise an artery to the surface, either in the carotid area or the femoral area, where we, through a small incision, where we can inject the arterial fluid into the artery. It's not going to go anyplace until we open a vein at the same location, and it's pulling that, pushing fluid. We don't drain the body like you think of the vampire movies and so on. We don't have to. But we have to make room for the fluid. We have to replace the blood with the fluid. And as we inject that, then it's going to every cell of the body to preserve and uh, to disinfect. Hmm. The reason we embalm is threefold. We embalm in order to preserve the body. Not for 2,000 years, but for the period necessary that we can aesthetically hold the body for public viewing and visitation. That's really the second reason we embalm. The primary reason we embalm is disinfection. The organisms in the body that are harmless while we're alive that can become pathogenic or harmful after death occurs. So the purpose of embalming primarily is protection of public health and disinfection of the body. The third reason we embalm is for appearance, to give us the body a semblance of the appearance it has during life. It's important for families and friends to view the body to bring home the reality of death. Yes, John has died. Yes, that's John. And yes, he's dead. Uh, that if we, if we could, and we can't do artificially what nature does naturally. If we could, we wouldn't, that wouldn't be the goal of having the viewing. Viewing is to bring home, bring back the memories of the life, but make the reality, the death a part of that reality. And that's, some of us don't need that. Most of us do. Some of us see a sign on the wall saying wet paint. And we believe it. Others of us go up and we rub our finger on the wall. Oh, that paint's wet. So different people have different needs. Mm -hmm. But we find, by and large, there's a reason why we do what we do. So uh, is there anything else before you get to the viewing? Uh, Do you have to remove anything, any organs or anything like that? Or If there's an autopsy, the pathologist would do that during the autopsy. We don't. We repair the, the autopsy meaning an autopsy is a surgical procedure, and that has to be uh, prepared. Um, the, uh, we do, do cosmetics, 
again, to give back a semblance of the appearance the individual had during life. And then we dress, the family brings in clothing. So we cosmetize and dress and, and then casket if that's the ultimate decision. Any, like, I've noticed uh, at funerals, like the mouths are oftentimes sort of, uh, is, is, are, they, are they stitched shut? I mean, how are the mouths kept shut or you just push the mouths closed? Uh, we, we often have to close, close the jaws with a, a, a typically a wire or something to hold the jaw closed. Lips, depending on the cause of death and somebody dies of an emaciated illness, we have to do restoration. Uh, but uh, people say, well, he doesn't look like himself. Often the reason for that, you and I are looking at each other now, and gravity is pulling our tissue down this way, and that's what people are. When we're dead, we look like we would if we were asleep on the sofa. You and I have never fallen asleep on the sofa before, but <laughs> if we fall asleep on the sofa and our family walks by and says, oh, dad's sleeping and walks on, we look the same because gravity's now pulling things back the other way. Right. They don't go over and stare at dad sleeping on the sofa. Right. To see how I look, if that makes any sense. That no, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Again, we can't do artificially what nature does naturally. Gravity's doing different things. Um that can make a difference. So injecting into the veins, uh, in the artery, in the artery. Uh, wiring the jaw shut, the eyes you can just close naturally. Yeah, their eye caps would go in to hold it closed. Eye caps. So what eye are those? Caps. Plastic caps that hold the the uh, eyelids closed. Interesting. Interesting. Excuse me. Just excuse me. Just one second. Yeah. The call. Yeah, my staff just came in. Okay. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll call when I'm done, but go ahead. Is Jeremy here? Yeah. yeah. Sorry, we just had a death call at a nursing home. Yeah, you do uh, Let me see that. So. Okay, the, uh, the note reads the name, uh, Hope Creek and Genesis Hospice called us. So the hospice was called to the nursing home, and they'd be the ones who would pronounce. And then now we will go and bring him into our care. Is the family there? No. The family's not there. So then when we come back with the gentleman, then we'll call the family and see what their wishes are. So arguably the um, arrange, so the arrangements had been made in advance with the family or with the funeral, or do, do you have an arrangement with the funeral home? Yeah. You know, in this case, the nursing home w- would have asked the fa- the hospice would have asked what funeral home. And they would typically do that when an individual goes on to hospice. You know, they get the doctor's name and the pharmacist's name and right. all, and, and the sure that name. makes awesome. that makes sense. Yeah. So so then would that family come and see you then to say we um, are putting down your name and we need often to they do often they do they don't have to okay but often often they do there's, there's some advantages finding out what's needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, beforehand, but I don't want to. Doesn't want to sound that it's a disadvantage to the family if they don't do it ahead of time. It could okay. be an advantage. Right. There's certainly we can do everything after death occurs too. Now in this instance, we'll call the family and making them see what their wishes are, how we can best help them, and set a time for us to get together with them to begin making plans. And you're not notifying the family of the death. 
Typically they will, not. They will know already. Yep. Okay. Yep. Um, so uh, you mentioned sort of reconstruction, right? So when you're doing a viewing, there are things that you want to look nice. Now you can't see the autopsy, but you want to repair that. But um, are there other types of reconstruction that you have to do? I mean, it sounds like you have to be pretty skilled at this. I mean, if you're going to try well, to. It's, a, it's an art. It yeah. really is an art and some are better than others, but yeah. Uh, and that's one of the courses in mortuary school is restorative art. It was the course. Right. Uh, and that can be everything from adding a little weight. If, if an individual's lost a lot of weight to uh, injuries, uh, traumatic death, and there are different things. I don't want to use the term plastic surgery because it's not that detailed, but there are things we can do to help restore the appearance of the individual head. Adding weight, is that just injecting things into yeah. the... Yeah. yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, Allie, take it away. I, I, could, <laughs> I could ask you a million questions about this process. <laughs> Go ahead, Allie. So I imagine that the grief that you see on a regular basis, I would assume daily, and if not, very, very regular, um, must be just overwhelming. But what is the, perhaps putting that aside, because I would assume that that would be just tremendously difficult to see, you know, what, what is the most difficult part of your job? Or, or is that really just number one? And let me come back to that and ask okay. me that again. But let's talk about that grief. Okay. Um, all of our relationships with people can be described as our relational pie. And the amount of pie that goes to our different relationships varies. Certainly our wife, my wife has the biggest hunk of my emotional pie. Mm -hmm. uh, my parents are gone, but they had it. My kids and grandchildren. But then the friends I have, and they have a smaller piece of it. And the acquaintances or business things and so on. So we get down to the the tiniest little sliver, and that might be the guy that lives uh, in the block behind me, and we leave for work the same time every day, and we wave, but we probably haven't even had a conversation, maybe. If I were to read in the paper that he died, there's a loss. There is a very tiny little piece of that emotional pie. All of those people are experiencing different stages of grief. And when they fill up the big auditorium where you're going to have your services, <laughs> some will be in the front row and some will be in the back, but they're all there to share. Mm -hmm. Often we're closer to our friends that we see every day at work or in the neighborhood or whatever than our family that we see at Easter and Christmas time and so on. And people say, well, we don't need a service because we have a small family. Well, they need mm. the service because they have large friends. And right. those friends' needs need to be taken into consideration. Yeah. And people say, I understand the value to viewing. It's important for our family, but we'll leave the casket closed in because we don't want to. He didn't want a bunch of strangers staring at him. Huh. Well, in the first place, strangers don't go to funerals. Right. Friends go to funerals. And those friends have the same needs when death occurs as the family does. And they, they need to be taken into consideration. You know, I've just 
through personal experience, I've found that it is always surprising how many friends are at a funeral and how comforting that number is um, in such a surprising way because you imagine like, oh, okay, my mom died and it's my sister and I and you know my parents were divorced and of course my father was there because he's a terrific man and a hero and 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 so you know my husband and my kids and okay so we've got a total of like 20 people you know and then you know there were 70 people there and i thought holy cats like that made me feel so it it gave me such comfort and and i think that that is such a nice thing to remind people of very good point uh, everybody's afraid of throwing a party and having nobody show up right and that never happens Rarely. But people say, well, you know, he didn't have any friends or we'll have a private service. And I tell them, well, that means that nobody will come unless you specifically invite them. Oh, well, the neighbors will come or the people that, you know, no. Well, the church people will come. Well, you don't want a private. Who are you? Who are you eliminating or trying to keep away with the private? Right. Well, they just don't want Strangers coming in again. Strangers don't go to funerals. Right. Um, when we get have real good news, we want to celebrate that and share that. When we're sad, we need to share that too. Yeah. We need to. We can't be alone. We need to have people around us for that comfort and support. The other reason for it is the memories, mm-hmm. and all we're doing, everything we're doing, is for the for the memories. My dad and I worked together for 15 years after I got out of mortuary school and came back to work for him. We were together 15 years before he died. He'd been active in the community most of his life. And I had some some of the business people he worked with tell me things at the visitation, stories I had never heard before. Mm -hmm. That wouldn't have come out any other way. If we say, well, we don't need visitation, they'll come to the house and see us. No, they don't. Uh, and they're not they're not going to come up to me in the street. By the way, I want to tell you, your dad did this and this for me 20 years ago. But you're at the funeral home and the body's there, ideally. It's a natural thing to talk about. And that's another reason for the open casket. If it's closed, it's harder to talk about the individual. It's there. Yeah. Gosh, yeah, I remember. I remember the time this, that and the other happened or whatever those memories, those memories are. Do you ever, uh, you did a really beautiful, eloquent job of talking about the importance of, of grief and, and, and going through this process, but there, there was another part of that question that I'd love to hear you address, which is, it has to take some emotional toll on you, especially when you have a really busy day dealing with so much intense grief. I mean, I remember going with my dad when my mother passed away and she passed away somewhat young. And he was overwhelmed with emotion, like he couldn't get words out. And it was it was very difficult to be in that room. I mean, that's kind of take a toll on you meeting after meeting after meeting. Do you ever go home and just feel like you are drained emotionally? Yeah. And, and I've cried going down a lot of church aisles mm. when I buried friends. Yeah. And I hope I never get away from that. I yeah. hope I never stop being involved in it. Um. You know, not every death is a sad death. Right. There's some, it's a relief, quite frankly. Yeah. The person has been senile and so on, and family's gone through their grief mm. maybe years before. 
mm-hmm. and others they'll never get over. It. You know, it was a motorcycle accident that we that just met with a family. Oh. Those those are difficult, and all we can all I can tell them is I can't imagine how you're feeling, but I want you to know I care very much, and I'm going to help you all I can. And we hold your hand and we're going to get through the next few, we're going to help you through the next few days or few, few weeks, whatever. I assume like, uh, there are types of deaths that are, that are involve a lot more sort of, um, I don't, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to say grief because I, I assume different deaths are different, right? So like, um, unexpected young, I assume sure. children. Sure. I mean, what, what are some oh, of the, the, oh. the different and kinds all of those, deaths? all those you can yeah. imagine, you know, right. uh, a, a child death, a young death, uh, uh, accident, uh, yeah. and all the children are left and, uh, an older person that, uh, just starting to enjoy retirement, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> all those are sad in different ways. Yeah, but the, the point is, everything we do as care as death care professionals helping people is to help them through those stages that they're going to be going through. Yeah, we can't just say we shouldn't just say, "Oh, John died. That's too bad. I didn't know he was sick, and we'll go on our life." We need to come. We celebrate birthdays. We celebrate retirements. We celebrate sixth grade graduations and certainly weddings and engagements and so on. When any event happens in our lives, we need to celebrate it emotionally as some part of our being. Mm -hmm. And the death is is as important an event as we have. And it's important for not only for the family, but for the community. I think that's why. Funeral customs in America are different than other parts of the country or other parts of the world. Mm. When our country was founded, the settlers were a small number of people against heavy odds. And each person was important to that community. And therefore, death was important to the community. Mm. And I think that comes forward why the American way of death uh, as it's been called, rightly or wrongly, is important. Uh, we, we put emphasis on life and therefore on death. That makes sense? Mm-hmm. It that does. Sense? You said that your father was a mortician as well. Um, you know, I feel like this tends to be a family business. It often does. Um in fact, I'm proud to be right now the board chair of Selected Independent Funeral Homes, which is the premier trade association for independently owned funeral homes in the country. And there's a growing tend toward corporate ownership, but mm-hmm. we kind of celebrate independently owned funeral homes. And it's surprising how many of our member firms are second, third, fourth generation. We were started in 1874 by Edwin Knox who started as E.B. Knox Picture Framing and Undertaking. <laughs> wow. That's Together great. Together at last. Roots actually go back to his father, Charles Knox, who started in the 1850s in a neighboring town. Wow. So Charles Knox, 1850, E.B. Knox, 1874. 
when he started our firm. His son, Luther, joined his dad in business in 1908. My dad bought from Luther in 1945. Wow. I joined dad in 69. My son joined me in 2004. So oh Reed, my, gosh. my son Reed is fifth generation, three in our family and two in the Knox family before us. And so those family connections are important and much very much a legacy of funeral service in many parts of the country. I'm sure that's incredibly important because when a loved one dies, you want to trust the people who you're turning your loved one over to. And if it's, you know, you don't want it to be, you know, sketchy, Skechersons, you know, funeral home. You <laughs> no. want it to be somebody who's been in the community for generations. Yeah. yeah. That's very real. Very true. Oh my gosh. It's so interesting. You know, when I was uh, talking to you on the phone, you, you made an interesting point. I wonder if you could expand upon that, which is <clears throat> sort of a throwaway line. I'm not sure that you even remember saying it, but, um, but when we were talking about scheduling you to come on the show, you said something really interesting, which, which I, I hadn't thought about, but I think is interesting. You said that um, American customs are changing a little bit to where it's becoming more cele- celebratory and less of a mournful experience, more of a celebration of life. Can you, can you expand upon how the customs were when you first got into the business and how you see it changing over time? Sure. Now, I've been in the business over 50 years, so we're going back a ways. <laughs> when I first came in, the business, every time the phone rang with the death, we knew there would be a funeral. We knew there would be a casket. We knew there would probably be a visitation, and they were just kind of beginning not having visitation, and there was a little bit of cremation. But by and large, every death involved a visitation one night, often two nights back then, a visitation, and then the funeral, either in the church or in the funeral home, and then a procession to the grave and the burial. Today, the phone rings with the reporting of death. There may be a funeral, there may not be a funeral. There may be a burial, there may not be a burial. There may be cremation, there may be viewing, there may not be any viewing. There may be a burial or cremation first and then a memorial service later without the body present. Uh, Or, as is becoming more and more uh, popular among families, a celebration of life event uh, or a hospitality event. I have a problem with the phrase celebration of life because there's no definition of what that means. Sometimes we'll see in the obituary, there'll be a celebration of his life from five until seven Monday night. Well, that implies it's a visitation or a wake. Or they'll say a celebration of his life will be held at 11 o'clock Thursday morning. That's implying it's a memorial service. Uh, We often would phrase, a celebration of his life will be held at Trimble Funeral Home, beginning with a, ga- a gathering of friends from 10 to noon, followed by a memorial service at noon, and a hospitality gathering after that. Now, to let people know what to expect when they're going to this thing that's called a celebration of life. A little bit of that's a euphemism for they don't want to say funeral. I don't want a funeral. 
No, mm. but you can have a don't don't throw a funeral for me. Throw a party for me. <laughs> the re, and that's the reason I don't know. May have gone in a little bit with you when we talked earlier. Um, we have a new building, seven year old building. Our building we were in for ninety of our hundred and forty seven years was taken by the state of Illinois for a new I seventy four Mississippi River bridge. So we had to relocate. We located in downtown Moline in a new building we call Trimble Point. Uh, it's a two-story building, and on the upper main level is the funeral level. I would have described it, it when we built it, planned it as a funeral level, and the lower level is a reception center uh, with a fully licensed serve food and serve alcohol, with a liquor license in the funeral. And as it's been seven years now, the community has embraced the building as a two-story event center for all of life's events, is our tagline. The funeral being the major one, but not the exclusive one. We've had, obviously, funerals on the upper level. We've had weddings on the upper level. We've had recitals on the upper level. We've had concerts and lectures and dinners. And we've had casketed visitations on a lower level because people wanted the bar open for it. What we're finding, well, we call them hospitality events, hospitality gathering, hospitality visitation, meaning food and or drinks involved. When we all celebrate with a glass in our hand. And when people, when we do have hospitality events, people do what they're supposed to do. They stay, they share, they visit, they talk. They don't just greet the family and leave. And that's what it needs to all be about, sharing the stories, sharing the memories telling the story. And we do that often with a glass in our hand. We're more comfortable doing that. The other change, of course, is church attendance is declining. Uh, people with a definite church faith preference are declining. So they aren't used to the rituals that we grew up with as children going off. Most of us with a faith based have that tradition of the ritual and the song and so on. Many people today don't have that. They don't really know what's involved in a funeral. Therefore, we don't, we won't do the funeral. We'll just do something else. It doesn't have to be at the funeral home. It can be in the park. It can be in the botanical center. It can be in the ball diamond. And they're doing all of those things that are their way of celebrating the life. One of our, uh, I'll, I'll give you the next question, but uh, Eric, and if this is offensive, my apologies right away. Mm-hmm. One of mine and Allie's favorite movie scenes of all time comes from the Big Lebowski when they're they're spreading the ashes. You never seen mm-hmm. that, that scene? Okay. Well, check YouTube out. <laughs> uh, he doesn't take the wind into account and uh, gets all over his friend, but uh, go ahead, Allie. Okay. You wanted the details. Oh, go ahead. Yes. Well, Cremated remains are not a fine cigarette ash like you see in the movies. The soft tissue burns away, so what's left is the skeleton, the bones, that are then processed so they fit in the urn. So it's more of a consistency of a a fine gravel or sand or or something, not, not this light cigarette ash. All right. So, all right. So let's say we'll do burial in a moment. 
but so describe the process of now what happens to get a body cremated. And do you have a crematorium in your... We do. Um, we do. Okay. There are 16 funeral homes in our market area. Mm-hmm. Only four of us have on-site crematories. Okay. Of those four, we're the only one with a private interior on-site crematory. We what does have, that mean? Well, it's important for families to know ours is private. That means no other funeral homes use it. It's not a public crematory. Gotcha. Everything's done under our direct care by our staff. All the others are in a garage space or a warehouse space. Ours is a part of the building. It's not a backroom function to us. And the fact it's on site is important. It means once the individual comes into our care, we're not going to go across town and turn it over to somebody else to do the job. Everything's going to be, he's never going to leave our care. Um, I don't know the exact percentage. I think I've heard maybe 25 or 30 percent of funeral homes have their own crematory. Most do not. And there's some real economical reasons for having a, a shared crematory. Uh, some states don't allow funeral homes to have crematories, believe it or not. Hmm. Makes no sense. Uh, and same of some states don't allow funeral homes to serve food or even coffee in their buildings. Hmm. Uh, that's a whole other conversation. Somewhere. Anyway, what before happens you, before with, you before you describe this process about what proportion of folks get cremated versus burial? Uh, we're about seventy percent cremation at this point. Really, really. And all right, so you've 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 preserved the body. It's been viewed. Now, what happens to it? Okay. Well, the other thing that cremation service may involve a full funeral ahead of time. Right, right. Visita- embalming, visitation, and viewing in the funeral, and then instead of going to the cemetery, we cremate. Right. Similarly, or it could involve nothing. None of those. If there's no viewing, we don't embalm. We have refrigeration in lieu of embalming. So the process on a, a direct cremation, uh, would, where there's no viewing and no services on, but the individual comes in our care, goes into refrigeration, while we get all the authorizations that are required, meet the family, the next of kin. In Illinois, we need both the, the coroner and the doctor and the registrar. All three have to sign a permit in order for us to do the cremation. Once we get all the authorizations done, then we cremate and then return the cremated remains to the family or take them to the cemetery, whatever the family's instructions are. Now, is there any additional process? So when you're doing for burial, is there any additional preparation you have to do after the embalming or or it's just placing them in the casket and and burying them in the ground? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting. All right. Sorry. Go ahead, Allie. How has being a funeral director changed your own ideas about death? Uh, well, I don't know whether it's me being a funeral director has changed it or being raised in a, in a family of faith uh, had no need to change it. Uh, I'm not afraid of death. I'm afraid of dying, meaning whatever that dying process is, I, that's what's scary, not being dead. What I have seen is the importance, as we've said earlier, the importance of the way families deal with the events after the death occurs. And those that have the celebration, gathering, funeral, memorial, whatever you want to call it, or whatever form it takes, come to a better sense. And that's been the real tragedy of the, of the pandemic. 
obviously the number of deaths has, has been a real tragedy, but families haven't been able to grieve the way they're supposed to do. Yeah. They couldn't come together and gather. When we need hugs the most, we were getting them the least. And that's been, been another, another tragedy of the pandemic. Have you had to bury folks from COVID? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, there have been COVID deaths. They're what I call pandemic deaths. Yeah. The elderly patient in the nursing home doesn't have COVID, but they're isolated. They can't see their family. They're eating all their meals in the room and so on. They just give up. Mm-hmm. Um, we're in, you know, along that line with the pandemic, we're now having families come back now a year later and they want to arrange a, a service and they need to. And they need to. So uh, let's talk about, you know, when families, sometimes it can, you can feel kind of blind. Like we felt kind of blindsided when my mom passed away. And you go in and, and there's, you know, and, and, and you folks do a great job and, and you walk everybody through, but it still can feel overwhelming in the midst of all your grief. So what are some things that, that people should know about uh, this process that might be helpful? Uh, what, are, what are some things that maybe you would say, you know what, don't focus your money so much on that. And then maybe something that people think, oh, I don't want to spend money on that, that you think, you know, that's actually something that you should spend your money on. Give us a some insight into some things we should know about that kind of thing. I think the important thing is to talk with your family yeah. about your wishes and their wishes. Right. Um, you know, ask some question, what cemetery do you go to? Well, I don't know. He never said his parents are in Wisconsin. My parents are in Missouri. We've lived here. I, he never said. Mm-hmm. If at some point they're driving by, you know, it's a pretty cemetery over there. Maybe we ought to buy lots there someday. Even if they never do it, they've got some indication. So that, mm-hmm. that's an important thing. The other thing is, I think it's important that people make discuss their arrangements in advance, either with their family or with their funeral director. They can prearrange with it, with their funeral director without paying. They can prepay ahead of time. There's some advantages to that. Uh, but it's important that the family be involved in those discussions. We've had instances where fam- individual says, I don't want to put any pressure on my family. I don't want to have them uh, going. So I just want direct cremation. I don't want any services. No, nothing. And death occurs. And family say, you know, she always said she didn't want any funerals, but we need to do something. <laughs> They're putting, that survivor is put in the damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. Mm-hmm. They follow what the individual wanted, follow their wishes. It's not what they need. If they do what they need, they're disobeying mm-hmm. the classmate. And I will often counsel families or advise families. One, did she ever tell you not to buy her anything at Christmas or for her birthday? (laughs) Yeah. Did you listen to her? No. Everything you do before then is for her. Everything you do afterwards is for ourselves, Mm. for for the survivor. And they need to make sure that what they do meet their needs. Are there any um, legal ramifications? Like what if somebody spells out what they want ahead of time? Like are, are you ever sort of compelled to do it a certain way or for the most part, is it up to the family? Uh, there are some things they can do to require. Is that kind of rare though? Not will be done. Often. Yeah. Yeah. We don't run into that very often. Um, it's uh, important too that 
the individuals know who's going to be in charge at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, that could be a family, a large family, and they have different ideas of what's going on. Um, there are legal things, at least in Illinois, you could name a, a person to be in charge who's to be make all the decisions. Mm-hmm. Again, we don't run into that often. Uh, we often see people at their best, and once in a while we see them at their worst. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. This just sparked from something you said earlier. You said something like, we're preserving them until basically we can get them in the ground or, or cremated or whatever the case may be. But then you said at some times you have to preserve for longer. What's the longest amount of time you've ever had to pre- keep a body refrigerated or whatever until you had a service? Uh, for under various circumstances, it could be days, maybe even weeks. Hmm. An example being Arlington National Cemetery. Yeah, yeah often several months. What was um, it? Uh, so you that's refrigeration until then, or, or embalming? Embalming, or embalming. And, and embalming would be necessary. That uh, and, and refrigeration. Yeah. Right. Uh, other examples might be a family members on a cruise. Right. And, uh-huh. You know, it's uh, yeah. moms in hospice. Um, <laughs> they cancel the cruise. Nothing will happen if they go on the cruise. Something's going to happen. You know that. Uh, so we can wait two or three weeks. Um, so if you're sending a body to uh, Arlington National Cemetery, how does that happen? Do you have to arrange for a plane to pick the body up? How does that work? Well, any death out of town, we would fly either drive in our hearse within driving distance mm-hmm. or fly commercially. Um, and it goes like, in the car. Like in the cargo? Of- in the cargo yeah. section. Of, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. I didn't yeah. know that. And there are shipping containers. We either ship a casket, casketed body in a protective air container or they call them combo units uh, with the, the body without the casket in more reinforced shipping container. So we would then drive to the airport. Uh, with Arlington, we're in Illinois and going to Arlington, we would arrange for the funeral home there to receive the body and then go to the cemetery. All right, Eric. Well, as you can tell, I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. And before we go, I want to give you the last word. Anything that you want to add before we go? I learned from my dad that when we go into a family home, when a death has occurred, we're walking out with their most sacred possession. They would rather have us walk out with all their silver and their jewels if we could just leave that person there like they were. Uh, We can't do that. So that puts a very real burden of trust on us to make sure that we do everything in their best interest to help them meet the, the needs they have. The other thing that's important, I think, is that for people to understand, we don't have funerals because a group of people got together uh, two or three generations ago and said, let's, um, let's create this product, call it a funeral, and we can call ourselves uh, funeral directors, and that'll be our living. There were funerals long before there was ever a professional to take care of it. They originally the community did it, yeah. and the, then there were the the undertakers. Well, they had that phrase because they undertook to do all the things that were necessary, rather than the cabinet maker and the grave digger and the minister. All be undertakers would, and that evolved into the profession. Neighbors, you get 
call your next door neighbor and say, hey, I've got a death there. Can you come and help me? You're not going to get much help today. A few generations ago, you would have gotten a lot of help. So that's, that's been been one of the changes in the evolution as, as the profession has evolved. It's truly a caregiving profession, and it's a calling. There's a lot of jobs are callings, not just clergy, not just religion. Uh, but there's some jobs I think you could probably do. You really don't like it, but it's a paycheck. And you, funeral service is not one of those jobs. You either have a real calling to do it or not. And if you don't have a calling, you might as well get out because you're not going to be any good. You're not going to help people. Eric Trimble, you have been a delight and a wonderful guest. Thank you so much. This has been fascinating. Well, thank you. I appreciate your interest in the subject and appreciate the opportunity to visit with you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Utterly Moderate Podcast. Before we go, we want to remind you to visit our website, utterlymoderatenetwork.com. There you can find all of our podcast episodes and their companion resources, our guide to reliable news outlets, the contact page where you can suggest topics for future shows, and more. That's utterlymoderatenetwork.com. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us on our next episode. And until then, we'll play you out with friends of the show, the Riders in the Sky. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling until then about the clouds when we're together just sing a song and bring the sunny weather happy trails to you till we meet again Take a liking to you.